Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of the Three States of Sound podcast. Uh, we hope you're all doing well. It has been a while since our first episode, and a lot has happened since that time. Uh, what you're about to hear is a longer than usual uh, episode of the Three States of Sound. Uh, however, we've decided to keep the conversation in its entirety, during which time we talked about not only what has happened in this country over the last month or since the murder of George Floyd, but also uh, historically these moments of injustice and the role that music has played in those moments. We hope to be just a small part of this ongoing dialogue, uh, this very important dialogue that will certainly continue uh, well after this podcast has ended. Derek, Josh, and I thank you for listening and be well. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is episode two of Three States of Sound. Uh, we've been we've been off for a little, little bit. We had a little bit of a break for both some personal reasons and and also just happenings in the world. Uh, it's been a very trying period for a lot of us, not just the three people you 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 will hear on this podcast. Uh, I think that what we've learned over the last since not just since May twenty fifth when George Floyd was was murdered but throughout a long, both shared and unique history and experience for, I think, a lot of us uh, when it comes to racism, race relations, police brutality, uh, the entire narrative that some of us more than others have lived in this country. As we sort of continued this conversation between, between Derek, uh, Derek Worthy, uh, Josh Hicks, and myself, it was it was difficult. It was difficult to, to to ask ourselves the question: How do we dive back into this conversation about music in this period of unrest when we knew or we know that there are other voices that need to be heard, that need to be amplified? Is it appropriate to jump in uh, with a conversation about music? And I think all of us arrived at the answer that absolutely, there is a thread that runs through this narrative of racism and violence in this country and also um, the role that music and entertainment has played in that conversation. And I think for all of us, for all three of us, it's important for us to share that story. Now, something that we didn't talk about in the first episode, and when we initially talked about how this, how this podcast would run, we had made the decision that we would not um, initially place too much emphasis on the fact that there there are three guys here in three different states but also Derek is African American black I am of Mexican descent and Josh as we were just discussing for all uh, intents and purposes uh, can be considered white although although he has a uh, a mix of several um uh, races in him and so 
I think that before we even start this conversation, guys, thank you for for really you know agreeing and, and sort of getting back together to have this conversation of substance while we while I know we've decided that we absolutely want to bring elements of music into this conversation and talk about those important things in our lives. I think that um, uh, I think that's you know first having sort of a level set here uh, and checking in. Derek, we'll start with you. How have you been? How has this uh, how has this period uh, affected you? But but more importantly, how is your family doing? It's been a challenge, to say the least. Uh, the biggest challenge for our family has been uh, the questions and uh, from our boys and how they've been impacted by this. Me uh, being in in my fifties now, I have. I've I've experienced this since the time that, or racism. I've experienced racism uh, since the time I was little. We attended an all-white school and grew up. We were the only the only African American family in that in that school district for a long time. Um, so I have experienced uh, racism firsthand from when I was little, and and then throughout my life, um, as is mostly common uh, for African-American people in America. Um, But for my boys, that's not really been the case. Um, They, uh, for lack of a better word, have been kind of sheltered from that blatant racism. Um, So it was was quite, and we've talked to them about, uh, we talk, to them and have a continuous conversation with them throughout their childhood about being black in America. And every time there's an incident from Freddie Gray to Tamir Hicks to, uh, to all these, all these names, like you could name literally hundreds of names. Um, whenever these things happen, we let our boys know, we, we try to prepare them and, and, and caution them what not to do if someone stops you, if a cop stops you, what to do, what to say, how to act. And it is draining. It is draining to say the least. Um, But this latest one, uh, my uh, my oldest twin, he came downstairs one day and he just looked at us and said, you know, I'm afraid to go outside. And uh, it just kind of like just hit us like a ton of bricks and this look on his face was this it was, what, what do you do how do you console how do you reassure how do you say everything's going to be all right as a, a parent to an african-american boy who should be living his best life and enjoying life to the fullest at 17 but yet he's has to deal with this reality and that's kind of been the story if you're a minority in America, especially if you're an African American uh, person or person of color in America, you have to grow up fast. You can't afford to be uh, naive. Uh, you cannot afford to be ignorant. You cannot afford to be uh, carefree. You can't afford to be. You have, I mean, you have to watch your speech, watch your manners, and that's that to me is it's almost like having. You know, it's like having this, uh, you can't be your true self. It's like, I feel like a lot of, you know, white kids, they get to grow up and be kind of carefree 
and not have to worry about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I grew up, when blacks, I think for it's like this, we have, we, we, we heard this before we kind of exist. We have this duality. We have our homes, we have black life, and then we have how we deal with the white world. Most mm-hmm. black people are used to being the only one in the room, but mm-hmm. most white people never have to deal with that where they're in the room with all black people. We go to these conferences, we go here, we go there, and we just have to navigate our way through there. And then when, when the, when the tables are turned and I hear some of my white friends say this, why, well, you know, I felt so uncomfortable <laughs> when they're in a room uh, when they're yeah. the only white person in the group of black people. And it, it, it's so weird, but that's our every day, you know? And so it's been a struggle uh, dealing with uh, this, with our boys. Uh, it's it just dealing with this uh, just on a day to day basis. I think because of COVID-19, this was a perfect storm for something like this. People were already, I think, under a lot of the stress. They've been cooped up in their homes. Uh, and so when this, when this happened, you know, why is this death uh, so different than all the other ones that came before it? Um, and I think that it was just the right time or the wrong time. But it was a perfect mix. It was a, we we're in a pressure cooker. And then this happened and this kind of exploded. Um, but I think that it's great that we have so many allies. I don't think that in the history of racism or the black experience in America, I don't think we've had as many allies across the spectrum uh, now that we've had before. And I think that also technology plays a huge part in that because we're all easily connected now. And so we have the Instagram and the Facebook. And, and the Reddit, and it was able to really amplify uh, the whole um, George Floyd uh, death and murder. And I think that there are so many people, because predominantly the world is black and brown people. Uh, mm-hmm. We're kind of under a misnomer here in America where we think we're the minority. We, they tell minorities, they tell Hispanics that you're a minority, we're black that you're in a minority. They tell Asian people you're in order. But when you go outside of America and globally, we are the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think a lot of people uh, kind of, and a lot of people are going through stuff. You kind of go through stuff and people are tired of being pushed around. And I think there's a lot of people who can identify with that and have identified with that. And so they've kind of uh, linked arms with us and it's been great. Um I'm hoping this momentum lasts. I hope we can make some really uh, some inroads into eradicating um, racism. It'd be great. Maybe I'm not in my lifetime, but hopefully, um, it's we're on the right path. Hopefully, yeah. I think the moment that that for me that that George Floyd and 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 what has become this momentous movement when it really hit me was actually the same story that you just told Derek. Uh, I was looking at, uh, you know, Facebook, I believe it was. And, and, and Tatanisha had posted that story of your son coming down. And, you know, I, I've, I've been an ally and anti-racist, uh, for, you know, my whole life. And, it was it. I, 
it, it makes me a little bit sad to think that it took that moment that, that Tatanisha was describing and that, that you've described for me to really feel that sort of innocent pain of, 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 a, of a black child being scared to even go outside. You know, and I've only met your boys, you know, a handful of times, but they're absolutely sweet humans and you're a sweet human and your wife is a sweet human. Uh, no one should be afraid of you guys. Uh, I mean, maybe if you got mad, you're, you're, you're a manly man. I'm not, I'm not taking that away from you, Derek, but, uh, you know, just having a fear of someone and, or, you know, having a hate towards someone when, when I was able to see that from your son's eyes through that post, that's when it really, you know, really truly hit home for me. And I think, you know, you'd brought this up that the COVID-19 had us in a pressure cooker and it's kind of a perfect storm of all this to, to generate this momentum. And, and I, I 100% agree with that. And I think what COVID and, and the quarantine did is level the playing field for us all and show that we're all human. You know, it doesn't matter how white you are, how rich you are. If you're exposed to this virus, you have the same chances of death as, as someone else, you know. Hmm. And we got to really get a good look at just how vulnerable we all are as humans. And then the video of this murder was special in, in, in its education because it wasn't a shooting where uh, an officer could say like, Oh, I thought, I thought he had a gun. Like, or I was, I was scared in the moment, but you know, I was fearful for my life. I had to use, you know, justifiable force. Uh, this is, is a smug man with his knee on another human on the neck of a man for nearly nine minutes. And to me, that is the best visual, or I, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say the best, the most accurate visual analogy to what systemic racism has been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I think that is why this is the straw that broke the camel's back and it shouldn't have taken this long. And I think mm. it because there are so many allies out there that truly don't understand what you and your family have to go through. Like the fact that you're saying, you know, you go to meetings all the time where you're the only black person. It's true. It's very rare that as a white person, I'm ever in a room full of people of color, uh, especially a room full of only black people. Uh, and until you are in those situations, like, you know, especially after having Obama as president, I think a lot of people just thought that, Hey, we are making good progress with racism here and kind of pat themselves on the back, you know, for, for being so woke and colorblind. And this really says like being woke and colorblind, like that's all bullshit. If you're not actually doing something, if you're not amplifying those black voices at a minimum and fighting for justice and and being anti-racist, not just tolerant, but anti-racist and demanding that your company do things, demanding that the companies you shop with uh, do something, you know, boycotting where it uh, is needed to make a point, you know, because we're capitalists. Like the only thing that's really going to do anything is the dollar. And I'm really 
excited uh, that uh, so many people are, are are seeing that now. And and like I said, this has pushed me to be a better ally, to be a true ally. Before I was an yeah. ally in spirit, but I honestly was not an ally in action outside of just you know debating with people about race and and trying to convince people that you know had these racist you know ideas that they're stupid um in in a as friendly a manner as you could possibly be with those type of people but um but now it's like you know putting my money where my mouth is you know signing petitions calling the phone numbers that you supplied to me uh you know for the Minneapolis um representative and mayor and uh uh, district attorney, you know, so, and, and being on the inside of a marketing company, uh, we're having conversations there and allowing just honest, unfiltered feedback from our, uh, black and people of color, uh, even up to the highest levels of our company, just sitting there and taking the truth and, not being able to, you know, uh, avoid it or, or have it hidden in an email. Uh, it it was a raw, beautiful thing that, that is sparking action, at least within my company. And I'm going to be in there holding us accountable to making sure that we're doing, uh, the right thing. But, um, you know, to to bring it all back to music, uh, I think (laughs) music is what, it is a unifying force for all of us. And I, I'm really glad that we're having this podcast episode now to, to be able to talk about music and how it's helped us through some of the things in the past and, and, and how it's a beacon of hope for the progress against racism. Hopefully there are even more great songs from you two guys that I can go and listen to. Josh, you, you, you brought up some excellent points about, that sort of collective conversation. And Derek, you brought up the point about assimilation. Um, and uh, I've been thinking that the interesting thing about, or not the interesting thing, but the maybe the unique thing about this opportunity to form a collective voice. And, and, and Derek, you had mentioned that you, had, you don't think you've seen a time when there have been this many allies or this much collective outrage is uh, I think that the same way that a person either has to or is encouraged to assimilate into a certain social structure. There's a way that people have to assimilate into a conversation as well. And I think largely the dominant conversation that has gone on around race relations or racism has been one of, uh, of a sort of peace and love and understanding. And it, 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 it seemed to be at times that the white community was saying, Okay, we get it. We get what you're saying. Now, please <laughs> don't be angry and let's yeah. try to find some common ground here. And what has happened, I think, today in sort of with, with contemporary politics uh, and, and, and just society in general under this administration is that there is collective outrage. There's collective outrage within the black community, within the, the, the Hispanic community, within the gay community. Uh, um, within you know white suburban women there's a there's a collective outrage and i think that what it's done is it's provided an opportunity for us outside of the black community to see the reaction and say 
listen, I'm not going to question why this is happening. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about why we got to this point. And I think that that has created the allyship or the, yes, the allyship that we're seeing now is that there is this collective outrage. And rightly so, this administration, I think all of us would agree, is completely out of control. And um, I think that it does provide us a good opportunity to have these conversations as long as we're listening. And to this point, it seems like the majority of the people that are reasonable are listening to what the black community is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so to bring it back, uh, Josh, you you'd brought this back to music. You know, there were um, some interesting stories. I know we had, we had started this conversation a few days ago. And for me, um, there are these interesting connections between the black community, and especially for me, although I, I do live in Montana now, I'm, uh, I was born and raised in Southern California, uh, kind of all over, but, but really, um, my roots, my family's roots are in Los Angeles. Uh, my dad grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood until, uh, the be- I think the beginning of high school. And then he lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, which created an interesting sort of <laughs> dynamic for him in, in terms of, of, of racism and race relations because he felt he didn't feel Mexican uh, or Mexican descent when he lived in a predominantly black neighborhood and he didn't feel uh, and, and, and he could sort of assimilate into white culture as a Mexican American when he lived in a white neighborhood in Downey. Um, and I think that through music, um, not through, just through my dad, but also through my grandfather who, um, who was uh, very much one who was interested in, in social justice conversations. Um, I, uh, I really sort of got my education in racism and, uh, um, and race relations. And, uh, as I've been looking over the past week at, at, at stories that I, that, that I was well aware of, I took the opportunity to really dive into stories of people like Ornette Coleman and Nina Simone, but also things like the race riots in 1943 that happened in Detroit, in Harlem, and in Los Angeles. Uh, which certainly there is some um, there's some music references that you can uh, that you can sort of pull on uh, from those riots, but um, but 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 for you guys in your own experiences, uh, I mean, has has music always had sort of a um, sort of this commonality with the conversation around racism and race relations for you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I think that you, I don't think you can separate. Um, it's impossible to separate the African-American uh, experience from uh, resistance music and um, that type of thing. I mean, you go back to uh, from, from slave uh, spirituals. A lot of it was coded. You go back to the the. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 those field songs that blacks used to sing, a lot of those had a double meaning. Uh, and that goes to speak with, uh, goes back to speak with the duality of the black experience. We would say one thing, um, and the white man would interpret it as, as something. And, but we had a, another meaning for it, those things, mm-hmm. those words. Um, so that's been with us since we've been here. 
And I think from if you watch the evolution of 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 black music, it has been permeated with that double speak and that resistance uh, to some extent the entire time that we've been here. And I think that is why um, so many people have kind of uh, grabbed onto it because it, it's almost the original protest songs were by uh, African-American folks. And then people, you know, you talk about uh, from Jelly Roll Morton to, uh, you know, um, to John Coltrane, to Miles Davis, to, uh, uh, to Ray Charles, to all these people, all these personalities, uh, these people have been singing against uh, the resistance and in that, in that coded language. I mean, Nina Simone, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. to uh, Stevie Wonder, to uh, Marvin Gaye, to James Brown, to, uh, you know, everyone uh, has been speaking out against uh, their uh, white experience and their experience here in America. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, there's a there's a wonderful um, documentary about Nina Simone on Netflix, and I, I apologize, I can't remember the name right now. I think it's what happened, or what happened, Miss Miss Simone. But um, the um, the song uh, Mississippi Goddamn, uh, the line in that song, um, oh, but this whole country is full of lies. You're going, you're all going to die and die like flies. There, there, um, Nina Simone leaving the country and also uh, other, other African Americans, other blacks leaving the country, like James Baldwin, the writer. Um, it, 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 it it's certainly when you look at, you, you said that, 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 that the, that the black experience and music go hand in hand. Um, it, it, it's like, it's, you know, somebody who has to sit down and write a song about, racism now i'm not diminishing his impact but somebody like bob dylan if he's going to write a song about an experience uh that is sort of stopping thinking about what's going on currently uh or or historically and writing a song but i think that you know me asking that question um about the sort of interconnectivity of of, of the black experience and um and music it's 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 quite apparent to me, and I think what I was trying to get out of this is that there is no sitting down and saying this happened, and I'm going to write a song about it. I think that especially in the black community, you see or you hear uh, a body of work that is that always has a message in there about that black experience, and it's 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 difficult to separate it from from the person. It's difficult to separate the art from the person when the art has been affected that much um, by n not just an individual, but as a, but as a community as well. Yeah. I, I think it's really interesting uh, to think about, you know, what Derek was saying about, you know, coded songs. And I think that's where some of the most effective music for change comes from. Like if you look at Marvin Gaye's what's going on, you know, mm -hmm. that, that that's a protest song, but it sounds like a, you know, a love song. And so yeah. for someone who's not in that community uh, or who isn't experiencing the problems that he's talking about in there, uh, the, the power is getting sucked in just by the music. 
And then when you get into the lyrics and you start to understand, then it opens that door, you know? And so I think there's a lot of music out there like that, that uh, as black music, you know, whether it's you know, jazz, rock and roll, which, you know, every, everything's appropriated. Let's just say that now. Uh, but having these types of music that, that originate in black communities and are built up through that, even though, you know, Elvis may, you know, take rock and roll and, and be hailed the king of it, which, you know, we can all agree he's not the founder, <laughs> definitely, and probably doesn't deserve to be the king. Uh, but, you know, in, in some ways, maybe now, uh, and, and, and I apologize if this is, optimistic reaching but i'm hoping that that cross-cultural barrier is getting beaten down over time so uh so black artists in their art can be the impactful thing on people and it doesn't have to be a big deal you know if if when you find out that tv on the radio is uh you know a black group you know uh Mm -hmm. Uh, like like that shouldn't be a like oh wow you know it's just like uh, well okay yeah i mean yeah musicians making cool stuff like why why would it be weird that they're this you know indie band uh like um and for me like how music has been a big part of my anti-racist growth uh because i i grew up you know white in a white neighborhood uh white town um, and I think I, I just didn't have to think about it, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, I was watching the wonder years on TV and maybe a little bit of something was on there, but mostly it was just about, you know, seventies cars and clothes. Like that was the closest I got to being exposed to anything is just mm-hmm. sitcom TV as a, as a youngster. Um, and then as I started to develop into my teens and, you know, went a little counterculture to what was acceptable in our hometown and people started treating me differently uh, because of the way I dressed, then I started to get a little more sensitive to what it's like to be mistreated. Uh, I'm not equating the two. I'm just saying that's what kind of opened my eyes to, to, to feel judgment. And then, you know, I, I, I wasn't really political at all. I was, more consumed with uh, matters of religion when I was in high school. And then I started listening to Rage Against the Machine. And that's when I started to get a little more political and to like read the lyrics that they have in there. uh, It it exposed me to a lot more and just made me want to educate myself. And then I get into college and, 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 you know, it, it really took college before any sort of, uh, tangible history of, of the oppression of the black uh, community or, or really any community uh, was even presented to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was when uh, I really began my, my anti-racist journey in earnest. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a period where one of uh, one of our black roommates or one of our roommates was president of a black fraternity. Uh, and we would have these house parties at the university of Oklahoma, uh, where 
the backyard was full of white kids with Radiohead t-shirts from the art school. And then the living room was full of the black students, you know, and, and athletes from, from his fraternity and their friends. And at the beginning of the party, it was totally just self-segregated, you know, and it's like, everyone's like, this is a little weird. By the end of it, uh, we're all like partying together, you know, and, and, and I remember just being there with my, my friends and roommates and just being like, dude, this is beautiful. Like, this is, this is the kind of thing that helps people, uh, you know, come together uh, on both sides, you know, uh, finding that, that literal common ground was the living room and, and no diggity, uh, playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, to, to Derek's point about being the only black guy in a room, uh, me and my other white roommate went to, uh, like a black fraternity party. And, you know, it's like the record scratch when we walk in the room, like these two white guys, and if we hadn't have been with Tony, you know, everyone would have, you know, maybe not let us like come in there. Because also, I should say, I I really tended to dress like a '70s cowboy when I was in college. Uh, so you know, I think I walked into this black frat party wearing boots and a cowboy hat, uh, which you know, <laughs> was just I just thought it was cool. I, you know, I liked uh, like '70s country, uh, and and you know. It, by by the you know one, once they saw that you know we were allies and like we weren't there to start trouble and that we're just having a good time and and, and hanging out then it, it you know it, it was one of the best experiences i've had you know in college is is being being forced out of my comfort zone and saying everything's okay you know like going in going into a a party and just having a good time should not be complicated for anyone. And, Mm. you know, yeah. And, and this, um, talking about sort of this, this commonality with groups of music, there was, there was a, there was a sign that I saw, um, multiple times during the protests over the last, over the last several days. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I can't remember exactly what it said, but one of them, was uh the message was uh love us as much as you love our culture mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. yeah and 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 that one really really hit me it brought me back to this i don't know if you guys remember this but in spike lee's do the right thing there is a scene where he is speaking to one of the italian characters i always forget the, the gentleman's name uh but uh where you know he gets him to admit like like your your racism and the words that you use sometimes are hidden behind the fact that your favorite basketball player is Magic Johnson and your favorite musician is Prince. And I think that this is where I was talking about earlier, how, where, uh, where the conversation may have existed in this place of, 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 well, let's try to find a common message and and, and common ground and sort of replaced with this, this, um, this outrage uh, and this anger I think it's absolutely needed because it is easy for some people to hide behind little gestures of race understanding or saying that your favorite musicians are black or that you have or the, or the old, I have a black best friend, I can't be racist or I have a black friend, so I can't be racist. Right. And I think that there is a deeper conversation underlying all of that, that takes listening, that takes understanding um, and I think that that's why for me, jazz music has always been 
or black classical music has always been um, something that I've looked to because in most in- instances, if you're talking about Ornette Coleman or Eric Dolphy or John Coltrane, especially from me, um, what you're hearing is you're hearing emotion. You're hearing someone's expression of rage or love or fear, and it's not hidden behind lyrics. And in, and, and in some cases, for people who aren't used to listening to jazz, um, it's not hidden behind uh, purely sort of an entertainment format. It takes time to listen and understand what is being expressed beyond just the obvious word or the obvious message. It's someone's individual experience. And I think that that's the great thing for me about what's happening now is I think that there is this pause moment. I've said this multiple times and I'm sorry, I keep repeating myself, but there really is this pause moment that feels like listening to music where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get outside of my head and I'm really going to try to listen to this expression. And, 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 and right now I'm, I'm going through the same thing. I'm, I'm stopped. I've stopped my own need to interpret what's being said and just really listen to, uh, to what's being expressed. Yeah, and I think that even within, I think that it's kind of when you have, um, like uh, Josh, you mentioned uh, Elvis Presley. And it's so ironic that um, people, a lot of people uh, dubbed him the, the, uh, the king, but it was so funny that he had, he had a huge, he had two um, black songwriters mm-hmm. um, that a lot of people uh, weren't even like aware of. Um, he had Otis Blackwell who wrote, he wrote for uh, not only Elvis Presley, but he wrote for Jerry Lee Lewis. He wrote for uh, D Clark and he, he sold millions of records over, you know, 200 million records worldwide. And he was the guy who penned a lot of these songs unbeknownst to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so even him, even Elvis Presley, people think, oh my God, he's great. But he, he was getting, he, he was biting on, you know, mm-hmm. the street cred and the ability of an African-American songwriter. Um, mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure he wouldn't have been as successful as he was without these guys writing songs for him. Um, yeah. But yeah. you go back even from jazz. It's, I think black music has always been a, a reaction to, uh, to something as most musicians are, they are, but especially black music has always been a rebellion against, and you find it throughout the world. You find it in, 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 in Irish folk music and Scottish folk music and all throughout the, the world. But the particular, there's, there's a particular uh, kind of music that I think happens uh, or, or happened out of the black experience that birthed rock you know, and Chuck Berry and, and that type of thing. There wouldn't be a Beatles per se without black music. There wouldn't be a Rolling Stones. There wouldn't be, you know, all these musicians who came who loved the African blues uh, music. And you, you see it throughout uh, the rock uh, pantheon of rock music. Uh, maybe the, the more current stuff, a lot of people don't realize that, but you talk about the rock music of the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was thoroughly bedded uh, in the black blues rock experience. Um, yeah. So, and even now it's that same, you know, that that incarnation where you had the Ray Charles and Stevie wonders and the, uh, you know, all, all all these black artists and then give way to 
to rap and how many copycat artists. Now everyone, now you you can't tell R and B, you can't tell the race of R or or song or a song that's on the top forty because a lot of it sounds like R and B music. It sounds mm-hmm. like black music, but it's just someone who's appropriated that and they're just singing it from Britney Spears, you know, through all over the place. Uh, that's what you have, and a lot of like you were saying, Josh. Or like you're saying, John, they say love us as much as you love our culture. Um, and you see it throughout commercials. You see it throughout advertisement. You see it throughout movies. They're fighting on black culture and sanitizing it and putting it up, you know, and that's just the way it is. But uh-huh. at the same token, if you look at those board of directors and a lot of the chain of command in those companies and you don't see any black faces, but yet you guys are using, appropriating the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that since you both brought up Elvis here, I think we can once and for all end this conversation. It never has to come up again. Little Richard is the king of rock and roll. So there you go. It's done. Um, yeah. Rest in peace. Yeah. Thanks. Um, the, uh, um, for me, the story of Ornette Coleman um, and how, at a time when, you know, I was, I was, I was reading this follow-up story that I had heard many years ago about Dizzy Gillespie, uh, uh, traveling around the world as, as, as this ambassador for the State Department. I think there were a few jazz musicians, if I'm not mistaken, that were used in this capacity. Um, and while still, <laughs> even in contemporary write-ups about, uh, Dizzy, um, traveling, uh, it's still, some people still offer this up as a wonderful story <laughs> as if uh, you know, as if Dizzy was more than happy to, to, to be this ambassador. The reality is that, uh, is, is that he was, he was used by the state department at a time when he would then come home and was not enjoying the freedoms that he was actually seeing in other countries. Um, and I think you've seen this again, how it brought up a lot of, a lot of black Americans leaving the country uh, to escape racism, but um, but Ornette Coleman uh, was very vocal in his opposition to using uh, to using his music or his compositions simply as a form of entertainment, specifically as a you know as a um, as a way for white Americans to just enjoy it as a sort of something to dance to, or sort of the way that jazz had been offered up for. For um, for many years, and his his deep emotional expression in those compositions that a lot of people find uh, find um, uh, unpleasant to listen to. Um, I mean, there's just so much beauty in that expression that I can't I can't speak highly enough about it. And in fact, that it's Ornette Coleman who brought me to a story that for me is, 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 is really the beginning of my interest in sort of music journalism and, 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 and understanding music deeper is a story that Lester Bangs wrote in, I believe 1981 or 82 about the relationship between free jazz and punk rock and uh, the no wave scene in New York that he was seeing in the late seventies and eighties and really what it came down to is it came to, down to bravery in music. Like, are you brave enough to, to, to express yourself any way you want, whether, whether people believe 
that it's a valid music form or not, are you brave enough to, to just to just drop that, that personal expression? And I think that, 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 that again, as we're talking about this conversation of music and race, for me, that, that is like the most important connection there. It's, it's just this, whatever the expression is, it's just saying it. It's just um, putting it out there and being brave enough to record that. And, and, and we certainly wouldn't have most of the, of the, uh, of some of the challenging music that we listen to without that bravery. And I think in the context of what's going on right now, there's that same bravery of expression. seems like a convoluted way <laughs> to, to, to sort of bring it back to, to a, to a music conversation, but that, especially with Ornette Coleman, that, that is, uh, that's really meaningful for me. Yeah. That's really interesting. Someone making music to challenge someone to listen to it because the art form was getting bastardized outside of the culture that was, was creating it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think that's brilliant. I I need to go listen to some of that stuff you're, you're talking about because you know, you, both of you guys are way better on the jazz stuff uh, than me. So, so this is where I'm going to dive in and learn, but uh, I think it's fascinating. Uh, if you could send me some of the tracks that, that really resonate, you know, we can put those yeah. in the playlist for the show. I'd really appreciate it. You know, the great thing is, to, and I absolutely will, or we, we will, but the great thing is look at the cover of uh, Ornette Coleman's uh, This Is Our Music. It's one that always strikes me because it's four individuals um, including Charlie Hayden, who was, uh, who's, who's white, but the, the, the album cover is four men who just have a complete, like just a, a, a very, very deadly serious look on their face. And I think that as, as we've all become accustomed to seeing album covers that, you know, are forced to show some sort of, you know, happy exterior and, 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 and make you feel all warm and fuzzy. Uh, there is a challenge in that album cover. And I, and I often do look at it as four guys saying, you know what, I'm not going to sell this to you at all. Either you pick up the album and you listen to it and you get something from it or you don't, but I'm not going to sell it. And, and, and that is, a, is an excellent message <laughs> for a lot of artists. <laughs> they almost should have titled it, uh, I dare you to play this as elevator music, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am just uh, curious uh, from, from each of you, um, the same way that for the past week, uh, I think a lot of us have been amplifying black voices and amplifying um, uh, people of color uh, and their messages. Um, are there albums, uh, um, documentaries, stories that you would recommend for listeners uh, to sort of dive into as, as sort of supplement, not supplemental material, but just, just to sort of emphasize these points that we're making. Uh, is there anything you guys can think of or hardest you can think of? Well, probably right off the bat, I'm going to, uh, I have to give it up to, uh, or recommend Curtis Mayfield's album, Take It to the Streets. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome album. His whole catalog is just, uh, just pretty amazing. I mean, it's the guy who wrote a Superfly soundtrack. Um, so there's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Um, so 
but definitely, although that album came out in 1990, um, it still speaks to the, uh, the black experience. But um, that album, and I would just check out pretty much the whole catalog of Curtis Mayfield just in general. Um, yeah. And then Miles Davis. I mean, you can't, you wouldn't have, I mean, he was one of the probably uh, the whole Arvin, the whole avant-garde uh, movement. I mean, that's one of the bedrock, that's one of the founders was Miles Davis. And again, like you were saying, Josh, you know, when black music, when black jazz music got, got bastardized and it was too commercial, uh, that was a reaction to, uh, you know, the whole, the whole avant-garde movement. You had, you know, you had Charles Mingus, you had Ornette McCormick, Eric Dolphy, and the list goes on and on and on. But these guys, John Coltrane, I mean, he, he went that direction too. Um, what uh, a love supreme. Um, but yet, you know, this, this is music that's not accessible, uh, not readily accessible to a lot of people. Uh, this is music that requires introspection, uh, patience. The first time I, I will admit this on here is the first time I ever admitted this. But the first time that I heard a love supreme, I did not like it. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. it, it took, it took a while uh, for me to connect with that music. And uh, now it's, it's one of my, you know, it's one of my favorite, favorite albums, John Coltrane albums, period. Yeah. Yeah. I have to admit it. I, I had the same experience. I think, I think for me, it was, I was, I was, I was sort of squarely in the early part of the classic quartet uh, recordings and, and, and a little bit of earlier stuff that Coltrane did with Miles Davis and I it was a baptism of fire for uh, for Coltrane's more challenging efforts because I was uh, I was asked to listen to uh, Interstellar Space uh, prior mm-hmm. to hearing Nels Klein, who's now the the, the guitarist of Wilco. Uh, many years ago, he uh, he did a reinterpretation of Interstellar Space, which was John Coltrane and Rashid Ali. Uh, it right. was Nels. It was it was Nels Klein and. I, I cannot remember the drummer's name. Anyway, I have a copy of it. But 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 Nels Klein was doing the uh, the Coltrane parts on his guitar, and I saw a performance of it, which led me back to uh, um, uh, some of uh, John Coltrane's uh, later work, and um, and I really didn't get to a Love Supreme until and, and until a little bit later. So it's kind of an odd like like the like that important period right in the middle. I got the bookends. And then finally dove into Love Supreme. So I think for me it was a it was a it was a much easier initial listen. Although there were parts of it that that are that are so challenging um, that it's a, that, as much as you don't want to tell yourself that you need a backstory to understand something. Knowing that Coltrane had the trust in those three musicians to write that piece as beautifully as he did, I, I think that that is really meaningful to, to, to have that piece of knowledge. I mean, he, he's, I, I think he was quite open with that, that that contributed to that beautiful composition of those beautiful compositions was simply the trust that those three guys could interpret what he was writing uh, and play it. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, Josh, how about you? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> for me, um, I'd say Stevie Wonder, <clears throat> excuse me, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, 
right. love is in need of love today specifically um i was listening to the the black lives matter uh, playlist on on spotify the other day and that song just uh it pierced me like a knife i can't even i can't even talk about it uh, without getting emotional right now just from the just the experience that i had like absorbing all of those emotions that were going through and that song just everything about it was was right and uh it was exactly what what i needed at that time uh and and what uh, i think could help everyone it's just such a pure song and you know stevie wonders is just such a pure voice you know and just there's there's pain in it and there's joy in it there's 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 hope and there's sorrow in that one song and i mean the entire album's a masterpiece obviously um but that was a that was a big one uh another album that i that i think people should listen to uh is uh, Kendrick Lamar's Damn and To Pimp a Butterfly mm. uh yeah. both are just really really great i mean like the the, be- the beats uh you know like his uh rapping ability is just insane his lyricism is is crazy but but he has a really good way of speaking the truth uh and um the blacker the berry is a song on to pimp a butterfly is uh just it 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 hits (laughs) you know it is a very very powerful song Uh, i I shared this with you guys the other night but um uh, the whalers uh, pass it on uh, I, I believe it was before it was Bob Marley and the Whalers. It was just the Whalers because uh, yeah. Bunny Whalers singing on that song. But uh, again, another one of those songs that's that's full of uh, just joy of life and and just has a really good message of of loving everyone, getting along, and and uh, knowing that that's come from a place of of oppression and pain. To, to see the strength in those artists to produce this beautiful, optimistic, compassionate uh, music just says so much, you know, cause I, I'm sure Celine Dion truly means it when she sings about the power of love, but I don't feel it as much as when Stevie wonder sings about love is in need of love today. You know, it's just, and again, I guess any any soul soul album uh, is is, uh, is great. Uh, the last one I will mention is uh, is Charles Bradley. Uh, he's a, he, he's a soul singer that was around for a long time, but really just got uh, you know sort of public uh, fame uh, right at the end of his life, and. Uh, he does a cover of Black Sabbath's Changes, which if you've ever watched uh, Big Mouth on Netflix, uh, it's a very raunchy show about puberty, uh, animation show. <laughs> they actually use Charles Bradley's version of Changes on that. Uh, but don't, don't just listen to it at the beginning of that show because then it, it, it's less impactful. Uh, go on to YouTube and find the performance that he has of uh of changes uh there's a live performance and just 
you know, he was singing it about his, his mom and, and her dying. And, you know, the song I believe was originally written as like a breakup, you know, song between lovers, but him interpreting it and, and changing it to be a song about his mother uh, is, uh, sorry, is really beautiful. And, you know, George Floyd's last moments when, when he's calling out for, for his mom, you know, it just, it, it really, uh, it, I, I think that song is just that, that we are all just, just trying to be happy and just trying to make, you know, be there with our family. And, and it, it, that song really gets me, uh, his version uh, again, gets to the humanity of what it is to be alive and, and what it is to grieve. And in this moment, this is a moment of grieving for our nation, but it is also a moment where we have momentum and, and, you know, there's enough people on board. There's enough money being withheld and, and promised that, that uh, hopefully we will see some, some changes, you know, come out of this. Absolutely. You know, I think it just has to be the will of the people. And I, it, I have a great example. Um, we had a, one of the presidents of our school board recently said something about, he commented on social media about the George Floyd uh, incident and was very insensitive uh to what he's pretty much victim blaming. Like had he not done what he, what he mm-hmm. did, you know, he wouldn't have had that encounter with the cops. Um, so uh, we were on a zoom call. They were actually, they had a zoom call for seven or eight hours. The school board did uh, where uh, people could uh, come on and, 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 and comment and speak. And the whole time, for the first half of the of the Zoom, uh, Brian Metcalf would he he had his face muted out. He wouldn't he wouldn't even appear. Um, and then only for the last portion of it did he actually uh, show his face. Um, but it was unanimous. We had you had students on there. You had former um, students of Grand Ledge who spoke of racism, who who spoke of of of, of him himself. Uh, being just a horrible person and sensitive, and they voted unanimously to to fire him, to remove him. Nice. Um, and I think that when we when we make racism feel it's when it's totally unacceptable, you know, drive it back into the darkness. Uh, that we'll feel the same way about racism as we feel about other types of people, like a pedophilia and things yeah. of that nature. When, 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 when people are ashamed to admit that they're racist, that's when we know that we are winning. Because uh, right now, I don't feel like we're winning. Uh, I still think there are a lot of racist uh, people here in America. And even the white supremacist mindset up and down these uh, institutions, that education, uh, everything that affects us from insurance to uh, uh a medical access to hospitals and good, decent medical care. It, all of this is, 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 is saturated with 
And there's so many stats that support that, you know, where African-American women are more likely to die in childbirth. And you can go up, you can go on and on and on and on about the things that are wrong uh, with America and corporate America in general and all facets of America. But until we start to, you know, make it just wrong, that, that it's something that you won't even admit. When you utter something or think something, people look at you like you, you know, like you're absolutely, you know, crazy, you know. Yeah. I think that's where we need to be, and hopefully we can we can get there. I think that's just a matter of time, but I think if we keep doing the things that we're doing now and we keep on exposing it, expose it to the light of day, you know, lies can't, you know, the best way to uh, eradicate or get rid of a lie is to expose it to the light of day. I'm paraphrasing, but I know there's something that goes along with something like that. Um, but we have to get there. We have to get to that point. And um, I hope we can do it for our kids' sake. Yeah. You know, saying that we need to get racism or, you know, uh, labeling someone who's racist as being as bad as being a pedophile, like, that is exactly it. Because (laughs) if, uh, you know, if I had an uncle who was racist, I'd be like, ah, my uncle's so racist. Like, uh, I wish he wasn't. But I wouldn't tell anyone. It's like, oh, my my uncle, you know, diddles kids. Uh, Wish he wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? So it's just like Uh we should be so ashamed of our neighbors and uh, just disgusted by even the slightest bit of racism that we treat it like a pedophile. Like I think that's a really good way, a powerful way of putting it, Derek. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think it's a responsibility for all of us to really amplify the true narrative of what's happened in this country. I think for a lot of those people that we're talking about who are still racist and still hold racist beliefs, it's not that I, anyone should feel sympathy for them, but they're certainly being, they've certainly been conditioned to believe a false narrative and, and, and they're handing that down to their children. And I think that. It's, it's not the responsibility of everyone, but certainly if you're in a position to amplify th- those messages so that people know what the true narrative of this country is and the experiences of people in this country, I think that'll go a long way in getting people to listen. Because um, there was a point that, that we had talked about sort of leading up to the show where you often hear this coming from people, the, the um, well, how long has it been? since slaves were freed and why has it taken black people this long to 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 sort of figure things out and the reality is is that they did figure it out post-slavery and there was a period of 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 absolute success within the black community that continued long after the jim crow laws but the jim crow laws certainly stopped a lot of that progress so i would ask you and i would ask people who think that way in a very sort of pointed and serious manner, shut up, because that is just not a, that is not a true representation of the black experience and what has happened in this country. And I think that there are many, many stories that we could all share to shed light on that, including something just sort of bringing it back to kind of our recommendations of what, of what you can listen to or, 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 or watch. Um, for me, there is, uh, I, I, I'm going to stop saying for me, um, there, is this, there is this understanding of the shared narrative between 
black Americans and especially uh, Mexicans in this country. Uh, that is, you know, that for me, that's sort of primarily what I'm focusing on because it's, it's been part of my own experience and part of my own understanding. And I think that Derek made the great point that if black and brown people especially could find that collective voice and amplify that voice, there is no stopping, you know, just, just simply based on, on, on numbers and demographics. And that doesn't have to be frightening for white people. I mean, ha- understanding the truth and understanding the experiences of both of these groups um, is only going to bring good. But if, 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 if the conflicts that have existed, or wh- whether they're real or perceived um, between the black community uh, and and uh, and the Latino and, and Mexican community, uh, that just needs to stop. And 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 there is an amazing documentary that's called LA Originals. I don't know if you guys had a chance to see it. I think you guys brought it to my attention initially, and then I ended up watching it. But there's this beautiful, there's this beautiful not sentiment, but just this understanding from several black people within that documentary about a native culture in Los Angeles, and it's a, and, and and it's a it's a culture that was, you know, born out, born out of the influence of Mexican-Americans in LA. And there's this beautiful, there's this beautiful coming together and, um, and, 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 and black people, sh- and, and, and black people in that documentary expressing their love of that native culture. And I think that as we're talking about the real narrative of the black experience in this country, Understanding that for a lot of people, there are those real stories. I think that that, again, is going to further the dialogue, is going to further the conversation, but it needs to be honest. It needs to be from an honest base and understanding. And so a lot of this music that we're talking about, uh, you know, whether they're albums or documentaries, that is a place to really get that true expression of what's going on, whether we're talking about Miles Davis or Marvin Gaye, and just a few things here uh, um, from me. Um, a couple of documentaries. There's one called Chasing Train that I think uh, the, about John Coltrane that you can find either on Netflix or on Amazon Prime. Um, and then also there's a great documentary about um, the musician Rasan Roland Kirk called The Case mm-hmm. of the Three-Sided Dream. Absolutely beautiful documentary. Um, it's got me to understand why... There are a lot of jazz musicians who have rejected the term jazz and who use black classical music to describe that medium. And it sounds trivial, but when you hear it from the song, it makes total sense. And it's, it's quite beautiful explanation. Um, also, um, Donny Hathaway is somebody that just for, for Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack, I think, uh, that the, the, the beauty of their music, but in that voice, that 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 feeling that you get, they're just two people that I highly recommend that um, that you listen to. Um, and then also just a little bit of homework. Uh, we're talking about historical moments in this country and really how it's led to this moment now. If you have some time, read about what happened in 1943 and read about that interconnectivity between the riots that happened in Detroit and Harlem. And in Los Angeles, I think that that helps a lot of people. Uh, that, that could help a lot of people understand that none of this is new. Um, yeah. This struggle has been going on for a very, very long time, and this is a moment 
to capture, but it's certainly part of a longer narrative. And also the Tulsa uh, race riots. Uh, yes. I, I think at least in Oklahoma, uh, very well hidden little facts of piece of history. Uh, I had no idea that any of that happened uh, until, you know, I'd say maybe five, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and, and I grew up an hour and a half away from Tulsa. Uh, so don't, yeah, we, we can't let history be, you know, whitewashed, uh, at all. And, and it's on all of us to, to educate ourselves and, and to learn what those systemic racism, uh, you know, the, the institutions that, that propels just that systemic racism, uh, and, and make it hard like you know like like john you were saying um like well uh you know it's been 400 years since slavery like why haven't black people done better uh like that's just a like i I can hear that coming from someone that's that's maybe even well-intentioned just ignorant and doesn't know how to think uh or hasn't done any bit of research uh but having things on hand and that documentaries are super helpful because people, people won't read. Uh, but, uh, get, getting that out to those people, like have a, a cache of, of just straight up knowledge, uh, that you can share like outside of the history books. Uh, and I did, I did want to mention one more, um, artist, uh, or, or kind of a subgenre. Uh, that people should listen to, and it's uh, Chopped and Screwed. Uh, this, you know, DJ Screw down in Houston, and the Screwed Up Click. Uh, George Floyd was actually uh, a part of that that click and did some some songs down there. And uh, I think it would be, you know, first off, it's uh, you know, I, I had some friends from Houston who brought that up when I was in college. That's uh, how I got exposed to Chopped and Screwed, but. Are you guys both familiar with, with that, that subgenre of hip hop? I am, I yeah. am not. <laughs> okay. And, right. and uh, just real quick, uh, well, go ahead, uh, Josh. Go ahead and I'll finish your point and I want to interject something real quick. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, Chopped and Screwed is just like, um, it's, a, it's kind of a, a local Houston thing that, that did spread across the South, but it's like very slowed down beats and these kind of, odd double uh double claps on on some of the mixes where it's like the beat will be like boom boom kind of my beatboxing skills are not worthy of it so just listen to it uh maybe we'll edit that part out of this uh but one of the guys that that i really like um is trey t-r-a-e the truth um and his song swang uh, it's mostly about driving Cadillacs, uh, you know, down the street in a unsafe manner, but it's, it's, it's got a good groove to it. So, uh, you know, it's a good entry into chopped and screwed cause it's, can be a little bit like, what is this? Uh, but yeah, I, I, to, to honor George Floyd and, and, and his friends, I think it would be good to, uh, to dive into that a little bit. Wait, um, to kind of uh, talk about what you're talking about in Oklahoma, and it's 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 what I was talking about with this duality uh, earlier, and 
it's when I got out of um, out of high school. And this is probably my junior and senior year, and then beyond high school when I went to the college and things like that nature. And I was going to like these Amiri Baraka poetry readings and things like that. You know, but we we've known about the Oklahoma um, massacre. Uh, it was the all we call it the Black Wall Street massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one occurred in Arkansas that um, that was also one that we heard about a lot was the Elaine massacre. I don't know if you ever heard of that one, but mm-hmm. that's a, that was a, a huge one. <laughs> that was really huge. Um, but these are things that we were taught, uh, you know, growing as I grew up, things that we never heard, uh, never read in our history books. Um, but uh, these are things that are just part of the black experience that we would hear. Um, it was our a secondary education uh, through our, our moms and our, our uncles and just the community at large, uh, that things that we would not have learned, didn't know about, uh, written textbooks at school. And uh, I'll send you, there's a really good article by the New York Times that kind of illuminates some of these unknown massacres uh, that happened that took place in America that you just probably never heard of. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And these are two that happened, you know, in my backyard and I've never heard of uh, the Elaine uh, massacre. I'm looking at it now and yeah, it's just insane. And it's, it's, it's infuriating to me how we aren't taught this in schools and that our uh, administrators and just the, just the, the racist institution not wanting progress to happen and just are, are willing to just totally uh, ignore this. And at the same time, blame, you know, black people for, for being unhappy or like, you know, the trope of the angry black man. It's like, well, you you got got a reason to be angry, you know? (laughs) Uh, And, and yeah, it's just encouraging now that, that the age of information is upon us and social media. Cause you know, if, 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 if if there wasn't a, a cell phone capturing all of these things, then it would continue to just be buried under, uh, you know, false narratives and, and now we, we we have some some truth coming out and that's that damn time yeah. and it's going to be very i know this has been stated over and over again but it's going to be very important to make sure that this conversation does not stop simply after a hashtag has has gone away or um you know people needing to tell you uh to post or, or, to, or to say something or to join and just like Derek, I think that there are signs that this this could be a um, a far greater movement than we've seen in the past, and and not just a temporary blip uh, that 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 goes away. Um, and I think that um, I certainly I, I don't want to say that this is only about the person in the White House, but this collective voice. I mean, let's at least keep this up until the election, right? Like, at the very least, that has to happen. Um, we can't just stop talking about it. I think I can't remember who it was. I think it was a governor in, in Missouri 
uh, if I'm not mistaken, who had said, like, you know, they're talking about the coronavirus now. We don't have to talk about the election until November. Well, that's absolutely wrong. Like, we should be talking about the election and the um, how impactful, you know, the words from politicians, especially the person who sits in the highest seat of the land, uh, how much that matters. Um, and I don't think that that person is capable of making a, uh, a hopeful or a, um, a hopeful message. And then that is, that's quite sad. But we, uh, while this felt like, oh no, sorry. Well, for some people, this may have felt like sort of a special, a special episode. <laughs> I kind of feel like old, like eighties sitcoms, you know, on a very, on a very special three states of sound. Um, this certainly is not a conversation that is simply for a moment. This is something that, as we stated up front, the, the, the stories of race are intertwined and can't be separated from the cultural impact of music and periods of music. And it's something that I think all of us feel very strongly about. And we will continue to have these conversations as we talk about music, um, whether it's contemporary music or put in a historical context. We will continue this conversation and uh, I think it was Josh who mentioned sort of this family of music. Um, uh, we will have a playlist available for everyone um, that will include, <laughs> I, I don't, we're, we're making notes here. I have a bunch of notes about, about bands and artists that we've, we've mentioned. Uh, we will have a, a, a very, a very, a very good list, a very good playlist of artists that you can listen to. Um, and yeah, thank you guys very much for for having this conversation, um, and uh, we will hopefully assemble for another episode very soon. Uh, we certainly enjoy bringing these conversations uh, to everyone, and, and like we said, please uh, interact with us on social if you can. If you have any questions, uh, we're available. Just drop us a message, and we will get back to you. But thank you all for listening, and thanks, guys very much. Stay safe out there. All right. Thanks. See you guys later.